Friends, we're in our third week on our series on spiritual disciplines. Uh, and before we get any further than that, if you're new or visiting, it's important to make this point when it comes to spiritual disciplines or spiritual practice, is that as Christians, we believe that we are saved by God's grace alone, uh, by faith in Him. This is what saves us, is what Christ has done on the cross by taking our sin and our evil upon Himself, dying in our place, and then breaking the power of death by His resurrection and opening up a new way for us to be in relationship with God. This is the, the gospel at its kind of core. And yet we also want to, to note that when we receive the Lord and we begin a walk in Him, a new journey of faith in Him, it is a beginning. It is not an end. It is a new start. And along the way, we are called to grow. Paul calls us to grow in Christ. And as we talk about spiritual disciplines, we're talking about ways in which Christians, the church, for the last 2,000 years, have uh, encountered God, grown in God. These are ways that we uh, can continue to grow in Christ. They don't save us. We are already saved, but these are, are ways that we engage with God, uh, ways in which we reorient our own hearts, our own attitudes, so that we can hear from Him more clearly. I just want to say that up front, because some folks can just hear the word kind of spiritual discipline or spiritual practice and think, well, we're just doing this to kind of get in God's good books. No, you're already in God's good books if you've come to Christ. And now we continue to grow in Him. And so two weeks ago we talked about prayer. We talked about reading Scripture. These are ways in which we communicate with God and spend time with Him and hear from Him. Last week we talked about simplicity. We talked about the, the ways in which we can get kind of overwhelmed and preoccupied by things in our world and our culture and mostly in our stuff. And we talked about uh, sometimes there's a call from the Lord to give some of the stuff away and just simplify our lives so we can be oriented towards Him. And this week, I want to talk about two, two kind of interrelated practices Fasting and feasting. Fasting and feasting. Both revolve around hunger. Both revolve around food, naturally. Both revolve around community. And both revolve around Jesus very, very specifically. And they point us to God, though they do so in different ways. If you don't know, uh, fasting is something that people in all sorts of religions do. People can do for just kind of for medical reasons. Sometimes you have to fast before you have a procedure of some kind, right? But the Christian kind of biblical idea of fasting is that we abstain from food. Usually you keep drinking water, but you abstain from food for a temporary season in order to press into God in prayer. So you, it's, it's not because the food is bad. That's really, really important. It's not because food is bad. You're simply saying, I'm going to withdraw from this one thing, this good thing, in order to press in to the most important thing, which is the Lord. Um, when I was in college, we did media fasts. And so for so many days, I, I think it was leading up to our encounter weekend that we put on, I can't remember exactly when we do this, but we would sometimes do media fasts. And so we would purposefully take something that's very, really preoccupied our time, whether it was Facebook or just being on the internet or whatever it was, 
we would just kind of shut it down for a season and give ourselves the space to really press into the Lord. And it's not because the internet was terrible, or the things we were doing on the internet were terrible, though maybe for some unpleasant, I don't know, but it was because we wanted to take a break from this thing in order to press into something better. Does that make sense? So don't start thinking food's bad. You can't get very far that way in the Christian life uh, if you're reading the Bible. It's, it just doesn't work. Don't get there in a second. But we withdraw for a time for a particular purpose. Sometimes we fast for a spiritual breakthrough. Sometimes we fast because we, we, we have a big decision to make. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in fasting, when we withdraw from food, uh, your, your hunger will uh, come, to the, come to the surface. Uh, in fact, your body is trained to kind of ask you for food at set hours. And so whenever you take a break, you know, if you miss a meal, right, you feel it. Like, we always have supper at whatever time. And it's an hour later, and I'm grumpy, you know, or whatever. Uh, but our body's kind of trained to give hunger cues at certain times. That's not real starvation. It's just not. It's just, our body is... Uh, Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration Discipline, says our body is kind of like a spoiled child. It just starts asking for things, like, give me the sugar, give me the caffeine, you know? And you, you, as human beings, get to choose who you are a slave to. Are you a slave to the hungers of your body, or will you be a servant and a slave to Jesus alone? So fasting confronts our, uh, our desires and our appetites, but when we fast, my experience with fasting is rather limited. I've only done maybe a 36-hour fast or something like that. Um, oh, that's brutal. I was just... Oh. I'm so... like I get so affected by the blood sugar thing, I just go... I've done the test. They say it's not a thing. I tell them it's a thing. My wife will tell you it's real. Get that down a snap, you know. Uh, but what happens when you fast is... Uh, you realize how much you crave things, first of all. But your own issues start to come to the surface. And any of you that have fasted for any length of time will, will attest to this. If there is anger in your heart, if there is bitterness in your heart, if there's, if there's something going on in your soul or something between you and God, that will come out in the past. And God will deal with, he'll confront your issues and your sins in the midst of the past. Uh, which can be really, really good, really, really healthy. So there's these spiritual benefits to fasting, as well as the physical ones as well. But, but as Christians, the Christian idea of fasting is to withdraw for a time from something good to press into something better. And in that process, God begins, begins to change our hearts. You've already heard the scriptures. I want to dive into Matthew 6. So turn back to Matthew 6, 16 to 18. I think it's interesting. Jesus' first words about fasting deal with the question of motive. Why are you doing this in the first place? Jesus is basically telling them, you can express your faith or beliefs uh, in a hypocritical way or in a God-honoring way. And so what does he say to them? It's so so telling about our own human condition, isn't it? The The way we get kind of caught up on things. And the way we get thinking about what other people think about us. I'm just trying to flip there. Matthew 6. He says, when you fast, essentially, don't make a big show of it. 
right? Like, you might think you're doing something really neat, but uh, it's not really about gaining everyone else's approval at all. When he says this, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So we call in practice, if you're fasting, you would kind of like throw ashes on yourself and not take a shower and just look miserable. And people would see you and be like, that guy looks miserable. He must be fasting. <laughs> Isn't he super spiritual? He's really something. Look at him. Yeah. Don't even take a shower. He's that good. Doesn't matter. <laughs> You know, whatever. Jesus says, don't get over yourself. Not about that. If that's all you were after was what people thought of you, that's all you'll get. That is your reward. But when you fast, if you're pressing into God in this way, and whatever it might be, when you're in a time of prayer, a season of prayer, a season of seeking, whatever it might be, it's not about drawing a bunch of attention to yourself. Jesus says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Basically, you anoint your head to kind of clean yourself. There's no regular bathing at this point, right? Uh, so you wear scented things often. So you anoint yourself. Uh, wash your face. That your fasting may not be seen by everyone else. Because that's not what you're after. But by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is saying, the things we do as Christians, you can live this out in a hypocritical way where you just want everyone else's attention. Or... You can live these things out in a God-honoring way, where you are where you are after His uh, not His approval, but His blessing and His encouragement and His grace in your life. And that concept brings true more than just fasting, but all sorts of things. Do I go about living my Christian life just so others can see me, just so I can kind of feel good about myself, or do I do I press in? Do I live out this life? I'm after God and after his heart. And he's the, he's the one on whom I lean and trust. He's the one that I want to guide my life. You see the difference, right? So Jesus says, if, if, if you are after this, just for whatever people think, that's all you'll get. The prayer, the fasting, it's not about, it's not about posturing yourself. It's about obediently listening to Jesus. And like more than just fasting, that breaks through for the rest of our lives as well. Are you just doing things to kind of check them off the list and say, well, this is what I think I'm supposed to do, or, you know, as a Christian, I'm supposed to do this and this and this, or are you doing it because you are in love with the Lord? Are you doing it because it just feels like a duty of something you're supposed to do, or do you do it because you are after God's heart? And that question of motive is the first thing Jesus goes to when he talks about fasting. So, so telling, isn't it? We need to hear this. Fasting has to be a matter of the heart. Now notice in 6.16, he says, when you fast. He doesn't say, if you fast. He also doesn't say, you must fast. There's kind of a freedom here. Jesus doesn't necessarily command it, but he just kind of expects that the disciples are going to fast. It's right in the same section as prayer and giving. It, it just seems like, in Jesus' mind, this is part of regular, day-to-day devotion to the Lord. That you will likely fast. And so, here's how you do it. It's a matter of, of your own heart between you and the Lord. And we do this to recognize, first and foremost, that He sustains us. Not bread alone. 
But we are sustained first and foremost by the grace and the power of Jesus. We, we, we fast from our physical food in order to feast on his word. And if you, if you fast for any length of time, and I've, I've given in your handout in the bulletin some practical, here's how to kind of fast. Um, but if you fast for any length of time, one of the, one of the great things you can do if, if you know, your work and family kind of responsibilities allow is you can take your meal time and turn it into a prayer time. So instead of you know, stopping for your lunch break, whatever that may be, you now are stopping for your prayer break. And it might be really difficult. You may not be able like, you know, your prayers aren't going very far. But this is a matter of retraining your own heart and your own attitudes. And as you do that, the Lord will meet you and bless you. And, and he will respond. And I know a few people, particularly, who have fasted for particular reasons, whether there was a question on their hearts, major decisions to make. And there was serious breakthrough. You know, the Lord really spoke, really gave direction and vision for their lives. And, you know, as they came out of it, of course, this is a temporary thing. It's not a state you're supposed to be in forever. But as they came out of it, you know, there's a refreshed sense of vision and direction. There was a refreshed sense of intimacy with the Lord. And uh, so fasting helped kind of produce all of those things. But it's about going after God, not about what people think of you, right? And it's easy, too easy for us to get those things kind of switched around. This is about pressing into God's presence. Now, I said we're talking about fasting and feasting. That's about the fasting bit right there. I also want to talk about feasting. And by feasting, I mean the joy of having a good meal around the table with your friends and your family, or with strangers, or with whoever, actually. But the joy of, of being together around the dinner table. If fasting... Uh, is about pressing into God, uh, seeking after his presence. Feasting is about celebrating God and enjoying all that he is for us. And Luke, that Luke passage, brings both of these together. So flip over to Luke. I believe it's Luke 5. Is that right? Thank you. Thank you. I don't have a great Luke 5. There it is. 532, there it is, yep. I love this. Listen to this question that comes to Jesus. They said to him, the disciples of John, John the Baptist, they fast often and offer prayers. You know, they're doing their thing. And the disciples of the Pharisees do it too. They fast, they pray, they look really religious. But your disciples don't look like this, Jesus. What's up with that? What does he say? Instead of fasting and praying, yours eat and drink. I love this. Yours eat and drink. Jesus, in this passage, he, he brings fasting and feasting together, and what he's going to do is he's going to reorient it all around himself. Look at what he says. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from here, and in those days they will fast. So he's talking about eating and drinking and fasting. What he's, what's he saying? Jesus is he's referring to himself as the bridegroom, which is this Old Testament image of the Lord. And he's saying, when, while the Lord is present with his people, bodily present right here, Yahweh among them, 
The Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld His glory, full of grace and truth, right here, right now. Here He is, right? God moved into the neighborhood. Here He is. When the Lord is present with the disciples, they are to rejoice, and to rejoice as a human means eating and drinking. And then Jesus says, there will be a time for fasting. Don't worry, there will be some fasting. But it will be once I'm gone. It will be once I've, I've died and raised and gone back to the Father that then the disciples will fast because this will be a season of seeking after the Lord between his first coming and his second coming. While the Lord is present, we celebrate and rejoice and while the Lord has gone for this season, the church season as it were, then there'll be time to fast. But right now while I'm with them, they don't need to fast. They don't need to fast because the one for whom they seek and pray in the fasting is present with them. Why would they need to fast when he's right there? Right? He's right there. No need to fast. And I love this because Jesus, Jesus takes the fasting and all the kinds of ideas we might have about it, how it's weird, how I need to do it all the time, how you know I might look really spiritual or not, all of that nonsense, whatever it might be. And he takes the fasting, he takes the feasting, and he just rewraps it all around himself. It's not about the fasting or the feasting. It's all about Jesus. When you fast, it's about pursuing God's presence because he's awake in this part. But we all know God has not abandoned us. Jesus says, I go that I may send the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is still present to his church by the Spirit. Therefore, he's here. Therefore, we can celebrate with the feasting. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Both have a place. Both have a place. The fasting reminds us of our need for God. And friends, the feasting reminds us of all that we already have in Him. And so you find Jesus fasting. You find Him praying, for sure. But you also find Jesus sparking celebrations all over the place. Have you ever noticed this? It seems that when you follow Jesus, a party spring up all over the place. And, uh, you know, we, we can talk about his first miracle, right? The wedding at Cana, what does he do? This is going to unsettle you. I'm sorry. He turns the water into wine. It's real wine. It's not grape juice. It's not raisin paste. It's real wine. Amen. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just reading the Bible to you. We can talk more about that later. Don't worry. He's not saying you can go get drunk. But there's something good in what he does. He's transforming the water into wine so they continue the feasting celebration of the wedding. That might be unsettling, but I give it to you. There it is. Jesus continues to have meals with all sorts of unsavory characters all throughout the Gospels, especially in Luke. And uh, as he goes about doing that, he gets this reputation. The Pharisees start to call Jesus a glutton and a drunkard. When was the last time, as a Christian, you were accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because of how you followed Jesus? Okay? Whoa, that's different. I think this tells us something about the heart of God, Francis. God welcomes the stranger and the sinner to the table. That is so his heart. He wants to come and eat with you. 
even the very worst of us, he wants to come and sit at the table with you and has a seat at the table. Each and every one of you. That is his heart, is to come and welcome you back to this place of hospitality and welcome and peace and joy of life that happens around the table. And he has a seat for you. So if the fasting, if fasting is mostly kind of a solitary practice, you could do fasting group, but often it's kind of a solitary thing. But, but praying and pursuing God, feasting is, is the flip side. It's a communal practice. You can't feast on your own. It doesn't work very good. Uh, feasting is this communal thing where we enjoy and celebrate God's presence. And guess what? They're both in Scripture, and we see Jesus doing both, and we see him inviting you to do both. Feasting, at the end of the day, is about food, imagine. But, but food as a reminder of the goodness of God's creation. Feasting, feasting reminds us, folks, that food, uh, our bodies, our physicality, the fact that you have a body, our world, God's creation, uh, is all declared good. Read Genesis 1-2, right? This is all declared good. And yes, even with the fall and sin entering the world, that goodness is tarnished, but it's not ever destroyed. God never removes his pronouncement of good over food and creation and physical bodies. He never removes that. Feasting is about enjoying, as Christians, this is a Christian thing to do, enjoying the goodness of God's creation as you eat and drink. Now, this might sound really strange to some people. Uh, it's a very Christian thing to get together with friends and have a meal. It's a very Christian thing. It's a very human thing, but it's a very Christian thing to get together with your friends and have a good meal. Jesus does it all the time. I have to read to you from, from Robert K. Pond. This is so good. He says, this is what fasting and feasting, he says, this, let us fast then, whenever we see fit, and as strenuously as we should. But having gotten that exercise out of the way, let us eat with festival, first of all, for life without occasions is not worth living. Let us eat with a glad good will. This is a Christian pastor. Let's eat with a glad good will, because God calls us to. See, friends, in modern times, we've turned food into fuel, and we think about our bodies as machines. And both of those are really unbiblical views. Think about your body, think about food. Jesus calls us to feast. He calls you to be able to enjoy a good meal and to celebrate the goodness of God and the life that he's given us. So when you come to the table, don't just think of this as, I need to fill up, you know, for the next whatever amount of time. But we come to the table to recognize and to celebrate that God's declaration of goodness over his creation is still ringing true. He has given this for us. And it is good for us to gather and to celebrate his goodness through what we eat as we bless him. And that's why the table becomes a place of hospitality. We get to bring people into our homes and welcome them and as we do so, we're welcoming them into God's presence. We're welcoming them to a seat at the table. And we get to become like Jesus by hosting them. 
in the same way that God has come to host you at His table. It becomes this beautiful, beautiful thing where we encounter God's goodness and we remember His grace and His love, His ongoing sustenance, His sustaining power in our lives. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus says, uh, the thing I'm going to give you to remember my death is a meal. I, he says, I long to have this meal with you. When you have this meal, you do it in remembrance of me. He doesn't say, sit and think in remembrance of me, which is we can do that, it's good. He says, eat, take and eat. Take and drink, eat and drink in remembrance of me. Something happens when we come to this table where we experience the grace and presence of God in what we eat. And there's something in the symbolism of recognizing that it's God who comes and sustains and fills us with his very life. It's him on whom we feast. It's him who transforms us more and more into himself. And we celebrate that at this table, but we celebrate it at every table. When you gather with your friends, when you go for lunch after this, whatever, whenever you go out, you do it as, as believers saying, we believe God's creation is good, and here he welcomes and blesses us. And that's why, that's why feasting, that's why communion friends are just, it's so important. It's so important that our faith is not just something we live out in our, in our heads, but it's something we know with our senses, with our hands, with our taste buds, as it were. Now, of course, feasting can go swinging in the other direction into gluttony and overindulgence and consumption and all of this sort of thing. But that, that's when we have turned ourselves in. We've made it all about ourselves. The Bible calls us to be other-focused, in fact, to, to be Godward with our eating, with all of our lives. But to feast means we remember we're in community and it involves one another and involves occasion. Jesus knew this. The Israel knew this. They're really good at having barbecues. Uh, the early church knew this, right? They get together. What do they do? They're getting together all the time to break bread. Why? Because it's the, it's the place, it's the action where we remember that God's given his life for us. But also, it's his good creation that sustains us. It is good for us to eat well together in the presence of God, folks. He calls us to that. I, uh, over Christmas, we went to see a movie in the theater. And of course, how do they play commercials in front of movies? Like, when did this happen, right? It's so weird. But anyway, we're waiting for the movie to come. Waiting, waiting, waiting. And then this ad comes on. Where it shows this family eating together. Maybe you've seen this. They're eating together, and it's showing a little girl as a kid. She's grabbing stuff off her school's plate, her dad's plate. It's hard to tell. She grabs something, runs around the room. Uh, and then, you know, there's people having fun. It's showing different things happening in the house. And then, like, she gets a little bit older. It shows the same scene again, and now she's a teenager. She does the same thing, grabs something off her dad's plate, her aunt's plate, or whatever. And then it shows her uh, as a young adult, and they're having Christmas or something together, and she does the same thing, grabs it, and they're all enjoying food together, and then there's a new scene, and it shows her face and starts to pan out, and she's sitting at her cubicle at work with like, a sandwich in front of her, and she looks around, and right, the family's all gone, it's just her eating by herself, and it continues to pan out, and everyone's having lunch by themselves in front of their computers. 
And the tagline was, May 2018, the year you eat together. And I thought, oh man, mm-hmm. this is the most Christian thing I've heard from this commercial, from a commercial probably all my life. May 2018, the year you eat together. I want to read, as we, uh, as we wrap this up, from Shana Manquist. She has a, a wonderful passage on this. And I think it's so, it's so relevant for us. There we are. She says this. At the very beginning, and all through the Bible, all through the stories about God and his people, there's stories about food. But all the life-changing with the bite of a fruit forbidden fruit, with trading and inheritance for a bowl of stew, about waking up to find the land littered with bread. God's way of caring for his people, about a wedding where the water was turned into wine. Jesus' first miracle, about the very last supper, the humble bread and wine becoming for all time, indelibly linked to the very body of Christ, the center point for thousands of years of belief. It matters. It mattered then, and it matters now, possibly even more so, because it's a way of reclaiming some of the things we may have lost along the way. Both the church and modern life, together and separately, have wandered away from the table. The church has preferred to live in the mind, the heart, and the soul, and almost not at all in fingers and mouths and senses. And modern life has pushed us into faux food, fast food, highly engineered food products, cased in sterile packages that we eat in the car or on the subway, as though we're astronauts. We don't have time for a meal. Can't be bothered. What happens around the table doesn't matter to a lot of people, but it matters more and more to me. Life at the table is life at its best to me. And the spiritual significance of what and how we eat and with whom and where is new and profound to me every day. Because I believe God is here among us, present and working. So good. And then she goes on to say this. I'm not a stickler about nutrition or a purist about organics, although they care about those things. I'm learning about them little by little. I'm living them step by step, meal by meal. I'm not a vegan. I don't eat low carb. I'm not asking you to change the way you eat necessarily, but I do want you to love what you eat. And I ask you to share food with people you love and to gather people together, whether it's for frozen pizza or filet mignon, whether I think it matters or not. It's a gathering of great significance. When you eat, I want you to think of God, of the holiness of hands that feed us, the provision we're given every time we eat. Some of the most sacred meals I've had were eaten out of travel mugs on camping trips. Many of them have been at our own table or around a coffee table. There's been high food and low food, fresh and frozen, extravagant, and right out of the pizza box. But it's about the table. About all the other places we find ourselves in. It's about the gathering together with friends and family. It's about the spirit or quality of living that rises up when we offer one another life itself in the form of dinner or soup and breakfast or bread and wine. Fasting and feasting, friends, both practices where the church turns to God and the one we refrain for a season to press 
and the other we enjoy his good creation with one another and we celebrate his presence. And they're both, they're not done for their own sakes, they're both done with the desire to press into God and seek after him. Whenever we turn this in inward, uh, it loses focus, it, it, it goes off center. But when we press into Christ, and listen to him in his word, we find both of these practices here for us as invitations for us to press into him. Capon, who writes a lot about food and faith, has this prayer, and I think I need to read you this prayer. It is, it's, it's so good. He says, Oh Lord, refresh our sensibilities. Give us this day our daily taste. Restore to us stews that spoons will not sink, and sauces that are never the same twice. Raise up among us stews with more gravy than we have bread to blot it with, and casseroles that put starch and substance on our lip modernity. Take away our fear of fat. Make us glad for the oil that ran down Aaron's beard. Give us pasta with a hundred fillings, rice of a thousand variations. Above all, give us grace to live as true men and women, to fast, till we come to refresh sense of what we have, and then to die grateful on all that comes to hand. Dry far from us, O most bountiful, all creatures of air and darkness. Cast out the demons that possess us. Deliver us from the fear of calories and the bondage of nutrition. And set us free once more in the, our own land where we shall serve thee as thou hast blessed us with the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. Amen. <laughs> Friends, may we be people whose meals bring us close to God. It's at a meal that he's chosen to come close to you. And friends, may you fast and feast as you find your life in Him. Not turn inward on yourself, but finding His grace and experiencing His blessing, both when you refrain for a season to press in with prayer, but when you come to the table to celebrate all His goodness and His mercy and His grace. Mm-hmm.